Well, hi, kids. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the best old-time radio podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on the 21st of May back in 2018. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Let's go. Well, hello, kids. Come on in. Time to come in off the golf course, off the tennis court. Come on. Get out of the swimming pool. It's time for a little Boomer Boulevard. This is Bob Bro, and I welcome you. I welcome you from all over the world people listen to us. Did you know that? We have listeners in, in, in the United States, obviously, but in Canada. A number of them in Canada, United Kingdom. Yeah, we have listeners, hello, in Ireland. We have people listening in Ireland and Indonesia, the Netherlands, Romania, on the Isle of Mauritius. Oh, man, we have people down in Belize and in Argentina. Really, I have a list of the countries where listeners listen. But uh, in the United States, I do have a number of cities where they tell me where listeners are listening. We have listeners in Anniston, Alabama, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Tampa, Florida, Lumberton, North Carolina, Amarillo, Texas, uh, Columbus, Nebraska, Miami, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, Secaucus, New Jersey, Dallas, Parker, Colorado, Cincinnati, Ohio, Emmett, California, Houston, Texas. Uh, Oh man, it just goes on. It's just pretty amazing to me that so many people have discovered us and I'm just tickled to death and so that's why I say welcome. Welcome. Have a great show for you tonight. Very good show. We're going to play a very moving episode of Nightbeat. I get a lot of requests for Nightbeat. That's becoming a lot of people's favorite show. We're going to follow that up with a visit to the Life of Riley and William Bendix. And that's, it's a fun one. We always like the Life of Riley and I've had a number of requests for that. Then we're going to follow it up with an episode of Gunsmoke I've never played before on any of my shows, believe it or not. I think I didn't have a a really good, high-quality sound on any of the episodes I have, but this one's pretty good. This one's pretty good. So this one goes all the way back to 52. This is one of the first 10 episodes of Gunsmoke, I'm sure. It's it's a dramatic one, and it's got a nice twist, too. It's sort of a little Shakespearean. So, man, it's a great lineup. Chester is all ready to go. He's, uh, He's back there looking very content, very dapper. Looks like you're going to a pool party or something afterwards, Chester. Well, you look very dapper. 
All right, everybody's here. We're glad to have you all along, and we're going to get started in just a minute. happen to a guy like me and only happen in a town like this so may I say to each of you most gratefully as I throw each one of you a kiss this is my kind of town, Chicago is My kind of town, Chicago is My kind of people too People who smile at you And each time I roam Chicago is calling me home, Chicago is why I just grin like a clown, it's my kind of town. If you love Chicago as much as I do, then this is a great show for you. It's another episode of Nightbeat about Randy Stone, who writes a column entitled Nightbeat for a great Chicago metropolitan newspaper. And we have been getting a lot of requests to do more Nightbeat, and so we're happy to present this episode tonight. And this one's kind of a tearjerker. And it also has a few plot twists that you may not expect along the way. This was originally broadcast on NBC back on October 26, 1951. Here is Frank Lovejoy in Nightbeat. And the name of this episode is Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers. Frank Lovejoy in Night Beat.
Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Tonight's story began more than a year ago, around 7 a.m. of a cold November. The city room was a wilderness of empty desks. There was a chill in the air. The radiators were knocking, but the heat wasn't coming in. Dawn dribbled down the main aisle like dirty dishwater. My desk lamp shone dismally on a cup of stale coffee and a chocolate donut, one bite missing. I was trying to finish my column and go home, but it was just one of those days the words wouldn't come. And I just sat there looking at the typewriter keys, hating them one and all from A through shift lock to ditto marks. And the drunk smiled sadly. Oh, nuts. That must be him, all right, Jenny. I suppose so. I pictured a better-looking man. I looked up. The old guy was as twisted and gnarled as a, an old shillelagh. If you can picture a shillelagh in a seedy mail-order suit. The old gal was dressed in shapeless black crepe. Looked like something left over from a rather unsuccessful funeral. Um, yeah. You go right on with your chores. Mr. Crothers and I'll just stand around and gawk. <laughs> yeah, you do that. Looks a lot easier than seeding an acre of barley, huh, Mr. Crothers? Yeah, but watch them fingers go. Like a bunch of beavers. Oh, beavers. <laughs> uh, uh, look. You are Randy Stone who covers the night beat? Mm-hmm. And you two, I presume, are the Livingstons. The Carruthers. Jenny and S.B. Carruthers of Burroughs Junction, Illinois. Well, I'm pleased to meet you. You know, I bet you we've got every last column you ever wrote, Mr. Stone. Tasted in our Chicago scrapbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along with Earl Cupsonet's column. And the writings of that dear Mr. O'Brien before that sweet soul passed on. All you people who write about Chicago. Ah, and now we're really here ourselves. Oh, it's like a dream come true. Fifty-five years we waited. Well, it doesn't seem that long, does it? Well, it's been fine seeing you. Now, if you'll excuse me. Yes, sir. Jen and I met at the Columbian Exposition back in 1895. That's why we have such a warm spot in our heart for Chicago. She worked in a cigar factory up in East Chicago. That's what attracted me. <laughs> Had nicotine on her fingers. Figured she must be one of them bad girls you're always hearing about and never lucky enough to meet. Now, Mr. Crothers, you stop that. Oh, that fair was quite an extravaganza. Uh, of course, you heard about uh, Little Egypt, Mr. Stone. Oh, sure. Oh, you stop that this minute, Mr. Crothers. Oh, she had it, Mr. Stone. That little lady had it. <laughs> Will you listen to this dried-up old man? If that just doesn't... Uh, uh look. Look, I'm sorry, but I, I've got to finish my work. Is there something you wanted? No. Well, uh, not exactly, that is. Not exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, we come off the train at 5.07 this morning and walked around a piece. All seems too strange, though. You know, the only place still standing is the hotel where Jen and I spent our honeymoon. But what a ruin that is today. And you registered there? No, no. Uh, uh, that's it. That's what we want to talk to you about. Uh, where's your luggage? Didn't bring any with us. Oh, oh, I see. 
I know Jenny's pretty hungry and tired. Now, you're the one's hungry and tired. Well, but I just couldn't go into any place and, well... I... Oh, yeah, sure, I, I understand. Only the flattery about the column and the just folks talk, that, that wasn't necessary. Uh, here. Uh, this five-spot help? Stand up. Huh? Stand up or I'll smash you right where you are. V.J. Carruthers, you stop that. You tell him to stand up. All the blood's rushing to your head and that vein is standing out. Now you turn right around and start walking for those stairs. What is this? Mr. Carruthers, you hear me? I just want him to be... Start walking. Oh. I'll be right with you. We didn't come here to beg you, Mr. Stone. You coming, Jen? Be right with you, Mr. Joe Lewis. Well, it's not begging if you're hungry. We came here to see you... Well, because even if you never knew us, we've been reading about you for so long, we felt like you were an old friend. We just came by Come to... Come on, Jim. Yes, all right. Now, now wait a minute. Oh, now, look. Stop, will you stop? You just leave us alone. Now, Mr. Carruthers. Uh... Look, I, I'm tired and I'm irritable. I'm having trouble with my story. Uh, Jen and me, we never took a dime we didn't work hard for. I'm sorry. Mr. Carruthers' pride. It's the talk of the whole county. Yeah, I can see it would be. Only when you mention not eating and, and having no luggage... Hey, hey, look in this purse of mine. Now, stop that. I want him to look into it. Does this look like we need your five dollars? Two thousand in traveler's checks oh. is all... Now, Mr. Carruthers, I don't like that, not one tiny bit. Well, I want to show him. That's just plain boasting. I just won't stand for it. But, Jen... You just he... better also tell him that it's the last red cent we have in the whole world, plus all the money from next year's crop advanced by the bank, plus $500 from a second mortgage on the property. Still don't need his $5. I told you, I'm sorry. Well, all right, then. Now, what are you going to do with all that money? We're going to make... A dream come true. A dream? We only had about $12 between us when we got married. Less than five, you boaster. Well, whatever it be. Let me tell him, will you? Well, just keep the facts straight. Ever since then, we always dreamed of coming back in style. If it couldn't be with the red carpet and all the trimmings... Well, you and... just listen to that man. Now, it's true, and you know it. How many hours we spent just talking about what we do. Well... Only every time we got a few dollars ahead, well, something happened. Yes, if it wasn't the flood, it was the drought. And if it wasn't a dust storm... It was another baby on the way. Mr. Carruthers. Well, now we decided we're going to make that dream come true no matter what. Only we're a couple of old hayseeds and we need help. You know, right clothes, the right hotel, the right restaurants. And, uh, and, and you want my advice? We did until you got so generous with five dollars... We still do, Mr. Stone. Well, I'll be very happy to help you. Well, thank you. Uh, Jen and me, we just got to have the best time of our whole lives. His voice had suddenly changed, and somehow the city room seemed to have grown much colder. I turned quickly to look at him. In the dim light, I saw something in those faded eyes that sent a trembling running through me. And then I looked again, and whatever I'd seen in the eyes wasn't there anymore. I decided that I was just tired, imagining things, and I let it go at that. They were a couple of sweet old characters, and I was going to do right by them. 
I poured enough coffee down my throat to push the cobwebs away, and then we started out on the town. First stop, of course, was an exclusive dress shop for stylish matrons on Michigan Boulevard. That's where all the lovely mannequins come equipped with soft gray wigs and the indirect lighting and the specially designed mirrors were more than kind. Well, what do you think of this dress, Mr. Carruthers? Same as I thought of the others. Makes you look too old. Oh! Haven't they got something that shows a little of the foreleg? Foreleg is what horses have. Yeah, on a woman, the uh, word is calf. Well, whatever it is, I want to see it. (laughs) So you just tell a young lady to bring out something else. Break it to me gently. How do I look? Real nice, Mr. Crothers. (laughs) I feel like a fish. Uh, Let me peek in this mirror. He always does look so fine in blue, Mr. Stone. He just does wonders for his eyes. Yeah. Well, it's a mighty fine hotel, and I'm glad that Mr. Crothers is registering. But... Yeah, I know how you feel. $38 a day, it makes me a little weak in the knees. No, it's not that. I want us to have the very best of everything. It's not that at all. It's... It's just... Well? Yeah? Well, we're country people, Mr. Stone. I don't know how to say it. Well, say what? I've been married to Mr. Crothers for 53 years. And in all that time, we've never slept apart. And I don't intend that we should start now. What? I've heard about these big city hotels with their twin beds. <laughs> you got nothing to worry about, honey. Not in the bridal suite. Well, after that, I gave Mr. Carruthers my telephone number should he need me, and then I staggered home for a couple hours of sleep. I was dead tired, but I wouldn't have traded this day for anything in the world. But then, just as I was about to doze off, all the warmth suddenly left me again, and again I heard what should have been just a nice bit of dialogue from a sweet old guy. Jen and me, we just got to have the best time of our whole lives. And for a moment, all the sleep was gone. I sat up, and when I tried to light a cigarette, my fingers trembled. And I didn't know why. During the next weeks, I got frequent calls from the Carruthers. They were having the time of their lives. They insisted I have at least one dinner with them, uh, their treat. We ate at the pump room, where the prices can give you indigestion, but never, never the food. And then I could see that I wasn't the only one who'd fallen under the spell of Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers of Burroughs Junction, Illinois. The waiters, the busboys, the maitre d', the people at the other tables. There was love at first sight. And the evening ended in the great schmaltzy tradition with Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers dancing by themselves on the small floor. And when the dance was over, everybody was clapping and touching their napkins to their eyes. Then the farmer and his wife came back to the table, hand in hand. Oh, <laughs> oh my. Where's the man out? <laughs> it's hot in here. 
You better sit down before you fall over, Mr. Crothers. Oh, kid, I could dent you into the floor. Kid, he's getting citified fast, huh, Mr. Stone? Yes, he sure is, kid. Sir, sure could dent you into the floor every night of the week and <laughs> twice on the 4th of July. <laughs> well, there's not going to be any more dancing. This is our last night. Oh? Money's all gone. Oh, but what a time we've had. <laughs> Got a lot more respect for money if it can bring us a month like this, eh, Jim? Oh, isn't it the truth? <laughs> we ought to drink a final toast, then. Ah, just about enough left. All right. You've got the floor, Mr. Carruthers. Oh, all right. Well, I can't think of anything real clever. Uh, let me see. Oh, I got a toast I learned at a stag when I was a growing boy. Now, Mr. Crothers. I wasn't going to use it, Jim. No, no, no. Oh, here's my toast. For every moment of our life together, I thank you, my dear. I went on about my work, checked in with the office at midnight as usual, and the girl at the switchboard had a message for me. Call Central Police Station and ask for Captain Barton. I put in the call thinking, well, laddie, back to the old routine. Then the captain came on the phone. Mr. Stone, we got a torn jacket down here with your name and telephone number scribbled on a slip of paper in one of the pockets. Well, well all my jackets are accounted for, Captain. I'm wearing it. No, this one belonged to an old fella around 70. Hmm? Dark blue, good material. Well, that, uh, that sounds like it belongs to Mr. Carruthers. Now, how do you spell that name? Where can I get a hold of him right away? Wait a minute, wait a minute, not so fast. What's up? Plenty is up. Your Mr. Carruthers is on his way to commit murder. Captain Barton sat on the edge of his desk while I examined the jacket. And across from him was a mournful-looking man with a fresh bandage plastered to his forehead. Barton stood up. Well? Yes, it's his. Uh, what's it all about? How'd he get torn? How did he get torn, he asks. Suppose you tell him, Mr. Hartman. What's to tell? He's strong for an old man like that. Well, he did farm work all his life. I could make a joke and say he sure plowed into me. Big joke. Mr. Hartman operates a pawn shop on Milwaukee Avenue. Well, what was he doing in your pawn shop? He was attracted by a revolver display I had in the window. Revolver display? Uh, particularly one Colt thirty-two, price $35. Worth every penny. He tried to steal the gun? I didn't say that. He wanted to buy it. Okay. But he didn't have a license. So I told him to go down to the police department and get a license tomorrow. He said he didn't have the time. It had to be now. It had to be now? I said I was sorry with me. It's strictly legitimate. Then the roof fell in. An old man like that. That sure doesn't sound like the fellow I know. Took the gun and started running for the door. Well, I grabbed him by the sleeve of his jacket here, and then whammo, he smacks the gun into my puss. Well, I hang on to the coat, it splits right down the middle, and he keeps running. Hmm. That isn't the only item on your and Mr. Carruthers tonight, Stone. Uh, what do you mean? This statement here didn't add up until Mr. Hartman came in. You listen to this. A telephone report from the Ajax Drugstore, 1947 Wabash Avenue. Ernest J. Gorman, manager. The statement follows. At about 8.40 p.m. tonight, Gorman waited on an elderly man dressed in a dark blue suit. The man told Gorman he wished to purchase some poison. Poison? The man claimed he wanted poison to destroy rats, but 
Gorman's suspicion were aroused by the man's insistence on knowing the reaction of such poisons on the human body. The old guy's a real doozy. The man offered Gorman a hundred dollars. That's what he offered me, only I turned him down cold. I've been in business since 1900 yeah. and... uh, go on, Captain. A hundred dollars for a few capsules of poison. When Gorman refused, the man exclaimed, I won't let her suffer, I'll find some way, and disappeared before Gorman could stop him. Brother. So he doesn't need the poison. He has my $35 gun. Hey, where are you going? Ah, uh, the phone. Operator, get me the Ambassador East Hotel. Fast, please. I don't know the number. It's an emergency. Is that where they're staying? Yes, you better get over there quick. Oh, I'll get on this intercom. Uh, Harry, have a car out in front right away. We'll be right oh, hello. Uh, I want to speak to Mr. Carruthers, room 1217. Yes, hurry, please. What's that? When? I see. Okay. Thank you. You can cancel that car, Captain. Huh? Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers checked out of the hotel three hours ago. Left no forwarding address. When I left the police station a little after 2 a.m., I really felt Jim dandy. I tried to get back to work, but that was a lost cause. Trying to kill his wife, it, it didn't make sense. It just didn't make sense. I recall the first time I'd seen them, the old guy shooting off his mouth about the Colombian Exposition of 1895, Little Egypt, and how changed everything was. And then I stopped dead in my tracks, that hotel that they'd stayed in back in 1895. I started running for the nearest phone booth. I woke up half a dozen people all over Chicago, local historians, hotel keepers. Finally, a sleepy voice fellow in charge of the Hotel Association of America gave me an answer. Must be the Gulliver House. Gulliver House, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what you must mean. Built for the exposition. Uh, where is it? Well, let me try and clear my head. Uh, woke me up out of a sound sleep. Will you, will you please hurry? It's urgent. Uh, the 93rd Street. Uh, it was considered very elegant when it was built. But now it's practically a flop house. No, there wasn't much left of the Gulliver House early grandeur. The marble floors were cracked and stained. The oversized chandeliers were filled with cobwebs and burned-out bulbs that nobody bothered to replace. A flock of beat-up leather chairs, an open elevator in the corner like a birdcage waiting for a lost canary. Nobody around but a bearded guy snoozing on a couch. I went to the desk. The night clerk was in an alcove making a pot of coffee on a little gas plate. I banged the bell. I'll be right with you. Uh, an old couple named Carruthers check in here tonight. Carruthers? Uh-huh. Oh, yes, a couple of hours ago, uh, room 412. Just let me finish measuring out this coffee now. Uh, take your time. I got all night. Hey, hey, where are you going? No, you wait till I call him. Don't you take that elevator. The elevator was another relic of the Columbian Exposition. And for the sake of the older generation, I only hope Little Egypt had just half the vibrations. It seemed to move in all directions except up. Oh, come on, come on. What was I going to find in room 412? I didn't even want to think about it. By then, I'd reached the fourth floor. And through the iron grillwork, I saw Mr. Carruthers standing in a faded bathrobe. 
and holding a Colt revolver that would have looked much better in the hock shop window. Well, open the door and come on out. What have you done to Jenny? Clerk called up and told me you were on your way. That open door down the hall, that's your room? Stay right where you are, Mr. Stone. That must be the manager ringing for the elevator. What have you done to your wife? Keep your voice down. Folks sleeping. Tell me. My nephew, Martin, that's my sister's boy, if he hadn't got out of medical school last June, uh, well, you know how it is. We wanted to give him a start. Figured it was time for a physical examination anyhow. Uh-huh. I guess uh, I ain't been to a doctor since maybe 1927 when I tore a ligament in my back. And Jenny... Well, almost as long. Anyhow, poor Martin, after he examined us in July, he called me into his office and said he was sorry that he ever become a doctor. Nice boy. He sure hated to tell me that Jenny had to die. Die? One of them incurable things. Too late to do anything about it. No pain yet. Another couple of months for that. And then maybe... Two more months at the most. Oh, I wish he'd stop that. That's when you decided on the trip to Chicago? At least we did have that, huh? Forget everything but how happy we were. Yeah. But in the back of my mind, I I decided that when the trip was over, well, I, I hadn't been able to do very much for Jenny... Maybe I could fix it so she she wouldn't have to suffer. And so you got the gun, huh? Yeah, that's right. Where are you going? Your room. I'm warning you, don't. Don't. You'll wake her up. What? Here's the gun. Take it. It hasn't been fired. Uh, I, I couldn't even do that for her. I sat there and I, I tried, but I, I couldn't even do that. I see. I can't help it. I, I'm selfish, I guess. I want every minute that I can have with her. I don't care how or why or anything. I... You better take that elevator down before he has a conniption. Yeah, I guess I'd better. Uh, Mr. Carruthers. Yes? Nothing. Give Jen my love. Bye. More than a year passed. I didn't forget the Carruthers, but I don't know. Life keeps piling up in front of you, and my memory of them kept being pushed farther and farther into the darkness. But early this evening, all the lights went on again. Fast. The papers sent me up to the Capitol at Springfield to cover a political story. I was driving back to Chicago the same day. Around 5 p.m., I saw that I was getting low on gas and I'd better fill up at the next town. And then I was passing the highway sign of the next town. Elevation, nil, population, even more so. But I forgot all about that when I saw the name of the place. Burroughs Junction. I stopped at the gas station only long enough to look through the thin phone book. And ten minutes later, I was parked in front of a rusty RFD mailbox with the name Carruthers stenciled on the side. The frame house was badly in need of paint. The pickup truck stood in the yard, balanced on blocks, its rear wheel missing. 
The steps were broken, an empty rocking chair groaned back and forth in the light wind as I crossed the warped porch. I knocked on the door, and after a while a hall light went on and someone was coming for the front door. What could I say to him? What could I tell him? And then the door was open. Why, Mr. Stone. Oh, how nice to see you again. Mrs. Carruthers. Come in. Come on in. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, it's not much like the bridal suite at the Ambassador East now, is it, Mr. Stone? Let me look at you. Oh, you look fine. Well, I feel all right for an old lady. Oh, man, do I feel relieved. I, I thought that... Huh? Well, I... Well, a young doctor, I, I guess he's entitled to one mistake, especially this kind, huh? Oh, I see. Mr. Carruthers told you. Yeah. Well, my nephew and I, we played a trick on the mister. Huh? I guess it's hard for you to understand about taking that trip to Chicago. It just grew out of all proportions. I mean, it became, I guess the word is obsession. Is that the word? Yeah. Well, as time went on and... All our plans for the trip fell through again and again. Well, in Mr. Crother's mind, not taking the trip became like a sign of his defeat. Just listen to me talking like one of those psychi uh, psychiatrists or whatever they call them. Well, you're, you're talking fine. But for him, it was the one thing that made our life together incomplete. Like he'd failed me. Of course, that sure wasn't so. I had the most wonderful life with him that any woman. But men think different than women about what's important and what's not. Yeah. And if he'd known the real truth, he'd never have taken that trip. All he'd think about was providing for me. He was that way. He sure was. Was. He passed on six months ago. Six months this October. What? Uh, my nephew and I, that was the trick, Mr. Stone. You see, it was Mr. Carruthers who had the sickness. <laughs> A fellow once wrote, when two people really love each other, there can never be a happy ending. Well, maybe, but, but I don't know. I sort of think if he could have seen the look of love in Mrs. Carruthers eyes as she talked about Mr., and if he could have heard the pride in her voice, maybe he'd have changed his line just a bit. Maybe to make it read, when two people really love each other, there can never be an ending. Copy, boy. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's transcribed story was written by Larry Marcus with music by Robert Armbruster. 
The part of Mrs. Carruthers was played by Jeanette Nolan. Ralph Moody was Mr. Carruthers. Others featured were Ben Wright and Lou Krugman. Don Rickles speaking. Frank Lovejoy can currently be seen starring in Warner Brothers' Force of Arms. Listen next week at this time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Wasn't that a touching episode? I have a hard time imagining anybody who was so in love with his wife the way he was, thinking that he could actually kill her to prevent her from suffering. And what would happen if the diagnosis was wrong? (laughs) But apparently the diagnosis was not wrong. That was Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers, and that one was first aired on NBC on October 26th in 1951. And uh, that is, of course, or was, an episode of Nightbeat. I found this show kind of fascinating with history. First of all, the Carruthers stayed at the Ambassador Hotel. And the Ambassador Hotel is still there today. Now, they mentioned the Ambassador East. There was actually two Ambassador Hotels, and they sat right across the street from one another. They were in the Gold Coast region of of Chicago, up around the water tower. And uh, there was the uh, East Hotel and the West Hotel, and they literally were at 1301 State and 1300 State. And the pump room was in the East Hotel. And that was a restaurant that was established way back in 1938 by an individual by the name of Ernie Byfield, and it became a very popular restaurant. I've actually been in the pump room. Unfortunately, it closed in 2017. It was um, a restaurant that served a number of celebrities who were regular customers. You'll see a lot of references to it in books and movies and literature. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock filmed uh, part of uh, North by Northwest in the pump room and in the uh, lobby of the Ambassador East Hotel. Arturo Petorino was the maitre d' in the pump room for a number of years. And it was his policy when he had a celebrity guest that he would steer them to the coveted, quote, booth one, unquote. Well, who sat in booth one? Well, over the years, there was Frank Sinatra, John Barrymore, Marilyn Monroe, Oprah Winfrey, Judy Garland, Betty Davis, Beverly Sills, David Bowie, uh, Natalie Wood, Robert Wagner, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, John Steinbeck, Ronald Reagan, Paul Harvey, Helen Hayes, Clark Gable, Sammy Davis Jr., Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Elizabeth Taylor, Lena Horne, Joan Crawford, Tallulah Bankhead, Audrey Hepburn, Liza Minnelli, Robert Redford, Bill Murray, Phil Collins, Gertrude Lawrence, Eddie Fisher, Michael J. Fox, John Belushi, Eddie Murphy, Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner, Mel Brooks, Olivia Newton-John, Peggy Lee, Mick Jagger, Vivian Lee, and that's just a few. In April 19, or excuse me, in April 2010, the Ambassador East Hotel was sold. It was closed for a year for remodeling. It reopened the next year as the public Chicago Hotel. And the pump room reopened in 2011 also. 
But once again, the hotel was sold in 2017 to Journal Hotels. They reestablished the name of the ambassador instead of the ambassador East or West. It was now the ambassador Chicago, but they closed the pump room to make room for a new restaurant. By the way, did you notice that the Carruthers paid a whopping $38 for their room at the Ambassador? Well, I checked prices. I just picked a night in June, just a random night, and the room started at $329. A superior room, now that's not a suite, just I guess an upgraded room that's not looking out on the alley, was $356. So that's uh, quite a spread from, uh, what year was it? 1951. Rooms have gone up about 10 times. Also, it said when they had originally been in Chicago, they had stayed at the Gulliver Hotel, which was part of the World's Fair. I tried to look that up. I couldn't find anything on it. I think that was a fictitious hotel. And they did mention the World's Fair, that they had stayed at the World's Fair in 1893, and that is factual. It was called the Columbian Exposition, it was held in Chicago in 1983, or excuse me, 1893 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World. The centerpiece of the fair was a large water pool that represented the long voyage Columbus took to the New World. Chicago really had to fight for the fair that year. It bested New York City, Washington, D.C., and St. Louis for the honor of hosting the fair. The exposition was influential. It uh, not only put you on the map socially and culturally, but it also had a profound effect on architecture, sanitation, and the city's self-image. The exposition covered more than 600 acres, and it featured nearly 200 buildings. These were predominantly designed as neoclassical architecture. They included canals, lagoons, and the fair was... um, manned by people and cultures from over 46 countries. Or I should say it was manned by people and featured cultures from over 46 countries. Most of the buildings were not designed to be permanent. There's there's a few buildings still in Chicago, though, that uh, were from that fair. And the most, um, probably the most dramatic one is the uh, Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, which is a famous, famous museum in Chicago. And that was one of the original World's Fair buildings. More than 27 million people attended the exposition during its six-month run. Among the well-loved commercial products that made their debut at the Chicago World's Fair were cream of wheat, juicy fruit gum, and Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. In fact, it was Pabst Blue Ribbon's winning of the Blue Ribbon that year, I believe, that gave them that name. But one of the things I really found interesting was that Mr. Carruthers was quite taken aback by a performance he saw at the World's Fair by Little Egypt. And it's true. At that fair, there was a dancer. Her name was Farida Spiropolis. And she first got her start dancing at the Birdcage Theater in Tombstone, Arizona. Now, we're talking back right around the time of Wyatt Earp, folks. But it wasn't in Tombstone where she gained international fame. Oh, no. It was in Chicago. It was in 1893 that she appeared on the stage of the Streets of Cairo exhibition on the Midway. That's where she introduced the dance that came to be referred to as the Hoochie Coochie, or some called it the Shimmy and Shake. At that time, the word belly dance had not yet entered the American vocabulary. It's believed that Spiropolis was the first in the U.S. to demonstrate the 
Dance of the Belly. Playing off her popularity, several women dancers adopted the name of Little Egypt to tour the United States performing some variation of her dance. Actually, in time, that name became synonymous with exotic dancers, often associated with the Dance of the Seven Veils. But no, it was at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 that Little Egypt gained her fame. Some have said that the name was given to her by someone that yelled out from the crowd. Others say it was a newspaper writer reporting on the fair. Lots of legends have borne up around Little Egypt. In fact, did you know that it's reported that Mark Twain had a near-fatal heart attack just watching her go through her gyrations and paces? But then, maybe that's just a legend. Who really knows? Step right up, folks, and see Little Egypt do a famous dance of the pyramids. She walks. She talks, she claws on her belly like a reptile. Just one thin dime, one pence of a dollar. Step right up, folks. I went and bought myself a ticket and I sat down in the very first row. They pulled the curtain up and when they turned the spotlight way down low. Little Egypt came out strutting, wearing nothing but... Texas on a tour. She laid her hat down and she did the hoochie coochie real slow. When she did a special number on a zebra skin, I thought she'd stop the show. Let me tell you people, little Egypt doesn't dance there anymore. She's too busy mopping and taking care of shopping at the store. Cause we've got seven kids and all day long they crawl around the floor. Singing.
something appalling, something for everyone of comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Do you remember The Life of Riley? Did you used to watch it on television? Man, I did when I was a kid. I think it came on Friday nights, if I'm not mistaken. It starred William Bendix. He was just about always Riley. Uh, There was a short time when the program first started on television. I think we talked about this last time. It had something to do with William Bendix's contract that they used uh, Jackie Gleason. But William Bendix was Riley. And I mean, he had it on radio for years and then uh, on television. I remember as a kid being in love with Babs. Oh, man. I just thought she was pretty. The cast on the radio show was almost entirely different from the cast on the television show, with the exception of Riley. And Digger O'Dell, who makes an appearance tonight, I don't remember him ever being on the television show. Now, I may be wrong about that, but I don't think so. Riley's a bit of a cheapskate, And that's really going to be uh, manifest in the script that we're going to hear tonight. This one was originally broadcast, like I said, on November 30th, 1946, and it's entitled Free Medical Advice. Relax and enjoy The Life of Riley. Teal for a beautiful smile, The Life of Riley for laughs. Teal. The amazing liquid dentifrice brings you the life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. <laughs> Remember, friends, for beautiful smiles, it's T E E L, Teal. And right now, it's the life of Riley. The other day, our hero, Chester A. Riley, tried to prove to his wife that he was still as athletic as ever. So he decided to hurdle a fence, a low fence. And now, three days later, he's still walking with a limp. Oh, can't you walk a little faster, Riley? It's late. Take it easy, Peg. I can't keep up with you. Don't forget, I got a gamey leg. Well, it serves you right, jumping over fences at your age. What do you mean, my age? I'm only 38. 38? (laughs) You mean 40. Well, okay, but if I'm 40, that makes you 37 instead of 35, like you tell people. All right, you're only 38. Mm. Now, come on, try to walk a little faster. How can I walk faster when I'm limping like this? Gee whiz, you think a wife would show a little sympathy. This might be serious. Well, then why not go see a doctor? I've been telling you that for the last three days. Oh, no, nothing doing. I ain't throwing out my hard-earned money on doctors. Remember that doctor I went to three years ago? Gave me an examination from head to foot. My lungs, my heart, my eyes, everything. And in the end, what did he tell me? I ain't got no illness. Well... What's wrong with that? When I pay out good money to doctors, I want to get something for it. Oh, that's ridiculous. Ten dollars he charged, and he had the nerve to ask for it right after the examination. Didn't trust me. Happened more than three years ago, but I'll never forget it. Not trusting me. Just for that, I got a good mind not to pay him. You're just like a lot of other people. You always want to get medical advice without paying for it. That ain't it. That ain't it at all. 
I just don't believe in doctors. As far as I'm concerned, I... hey, look, ain't that Dr. Lang coming this way? The one who just moved in on our block? Oh, yes, that's him. They say he's a wonderful doctor. Oh, he is, huh? Uh, well, g- g- good evening, Dr. Lang. Eh? Oh, oh, good evening, uh, uh, Mr. Riley, Mrs. Riley. Lovely night. Oh, yes, isn't it? Yes, well, good oh, night. Oh, uh, by the way, eh? Doctor, uh, there was something I wanted to ask you. Yes? Uh, I uh, jumped over a fence and I, I hurt my leg. Of course, it's nothing really, but I just thought as long as we met like this... Your we... leg uh, pains you? Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of uh, shooting pain? Yeah, that's right. And there's a slight swelling around the joint? Yeah, yeah, that's right. What do you think I ought to do? There's only one thing I can suggest. Yeah, yeah. Come and see me in my office tomorrow. <clears throat> Good night. <laughs> well, how do you like that? What a cheapskate. I can't stand that type. Crazy for a dollar. I ought to report him to the medical association. <laughs> what for? For not giving you free advice on the street? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. He's the one who ought to be ashamed. After all, he once took a vow to help suffering humanity, didn't he? Well, yes, but that's. Well, I got a good mind to report him for breaking the oath of the hypocrites. (laughs) Oh, you're talking nonsense. Come on, let's get home. Okay, okay, but mark my words. These doctors are. Peg, look. Hmm? What now? Look, outside our house, there's been an accident. Look at that wrecked car. That's not a wreck. That's Simon Vanderhopper's jalopy. He and Babs had a date tonight. I thought I told you I don't want that no-good loafer going around with Babs. Oh, Riley, Simon's a nice boy. Yeah, some boy. 21 years old, and he still chews bubble gum. (laughs) So what if he likes bubble gum? Well, he don't have to keep mooching it for me. (laughs) And he's not a loafer. He's still studying. He's taking up entomology. Enter what? Entomology. He's studying all about insects. Oh, so that accounts for the ants I seen last night. He's got to stop doing his homework in our kitchen. <laughs> and I tell you, he's got to stop seeing our beds. Now, be I... sensible. Suppose Babs does like Simon a little. That isn't a catastrophe. Oh, that's what you say. You once started off liking me a little, and now we're married. <laughs> what are you talking about? Do you know what catastrophe means? That's beside the point. Once and for all, I... Hey, they're not on the porch. Look. Well, they're probably in the house. That's just it. Simon's in the house with Babs alone. Well, suppose they are alone. What of it? I can see you've never been a boy. <laughs> Riley, don't be an old fogey. Why, when you were courting me, my father left us alone in the living room because he understood young people. He saw eye to eye with the younger generation. Listen, the only time I ever saw eye to eye with your father was through a keyhole. <laughs> Come on, I want to hear what they're saying. Riley, now I won't have you eavesdropping. It ain't eavesdropping. I got a right to stand on my own porch with my own ear to my own door. After all, I pay rent on that porch, and I own my ear free and clear. <laughs> It was swell of you to let me come in for a while. Well, I really shouldn't have. You'll have to go before my father gets home, Simon. Fie on your father. Let's live dangerously. (laughs) Gosh. Gosh, this is a thrill, sitting on the same couch with you. Oh, Simon. You often sit on this couch with me. Yes, but your father always sits between us. (laughs) But don't worry. Someday we'll have a couch of our own and a house, too. 
Nothing elaborate. Just a tiny two-room California bungalow. We won't pay a cent more than $30,000. Simon, you stop talking about us having a house. I can't help it, Babs. I love you. I love you madly. <laughs> oh, don't be a drip. It's true. I can't stand it any longer. I think of you day and night. I can't work on account of you. Why, yesterday in the lab, I took a spider and put it under the microscope, and when I looked in, what did I see? You. <laughs> Simon, you really have to go now. Well, first you must kiss me. Kiss me wildly, passionately, right here on my forehead. <laughs> For heaven's sake, Simon, what's gotten into you? That's the way I am, Babs. Don't let my appearance fool you. On the surface, I'm like a quiet lake, smooth and calm. But I got a terrific undertow. <laughs> I, I love you. I love you madly. All right, Simon, save it for next time. You go home now. Oh, all right. But first, I want to feel two arms around my neck and... Oh, you want two arms around your neck, do you? <laughs> Mr. Riley, you're choking me. Daddy! Riley, leave Simon alone. Simon, get out of this house. Oh, gosh, what did I do? Oh, Daddy, why do you always make a scene when Simon's here? I told you a thousand times I don't want you hanging around with this... this... Couch slouch. <laughs> uh, give me a chance, Mr. Riley. Let me stay and I'll never sit next to Babs on the couch again. Well... Uh, we'll sit on the love seat. Simon, out. Go on now. now please, Riley. But Mr. Riley, uh, I love Babs. I want to give her my name. I want to marry her. Peg, do you hear that? He admits it. He wants to take our little Babs away from us and call her Vanderhopper yet. <laughs> Oh, no, Mr. Riley, don't look at it like that. When I marry Babs, you won't lose a daughter. You'll gain a son, because I'll move in. <laughs> Simon, get out of this house! But, Daddy, I promised Simon... Babs, I said you can't see Simon, and that's final. My head's made up. Now, stop pestering me. This leg of mine's given me enough trouble. Oh, Riley, uh, I got to go to that meeting now. Here's another hot compress. Oh, thanks, Dumplin'. Won't do any good, though. Well, then, for heaven's sake, see a doctor. Oh, no, 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 no doctors. I'm letting nature cure me. Nature is the best doctor. Besides, nature don't send you a bill. <laughs> Daddy, please let me go. Simon got two tickets for the football game tonight, and they're so hard to get. Oh, so it's a football game, huh? That settles it. No daughter of mine is going to go to no football game. I've seen what goes on at those games. There's more huddles in the grandstand than on the field. I think you're unfair. Unfair? Me? Nobody can say I'm undemocratic. I say you can't go, but I'm willing to have your mother vote too. It's up to you, Peg. I think she ought to go with Simon. In that case, I got only one alternative. I'm using my veto. <laughs> I'm sorry, Babs, dear. Well, I haven't got time to stand here and argue. I'm late now. You'll have to settle this with your father. Good night. I'll try not to be late. All right. Daddy. No. If it was any boy except Simon, Oh, I'd... you're mean. Babs, darling. I'm only doing this for you. It ain't easy to be a father. Ask your mother. <laughs> you see... 
A father is like a dentist. He may hurt you when he pulls a tooth, but it's for your own good. And that's why I don't want you going around with a cavity like Simon. <laughs> oh, well, that's Simon now. What'll I tell him? Nothing. I'll do all the telling. You sit there. Oh, good evening, Mr. Riley. Good night, Simon. Wait. <laughs> I just came to tell Babs I can't take her out tonight. You what? What do you mean by breaking a date with my daughter? Simon, you can't take me? No, I gotta go out with my uncle. He just got into town. He's out in the car. Oh, go on. Go with your uncle. Babs don't want you anyway. Simon, my boy, I couldn't help overhearing. I didn't know you had a date tonight. Now, I won't have you breaking it on my account. Don't worry, he ain't. He's breaking it on my account. Oh. Uh, uncle, this is Mr. Riley, and this is Miss Riley, and this is my uncle, Dr. Lucius Vanderhopper. Well, how do you do, Miss Riley? How do you do? Delighted to know you, sir. Did you say, uh, doctor? Yes. Oh, of course. Well, 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 I'm glad to know you, doctor. Am I happy to meet you? <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Now, may I offer a bit of advice? Advice? For free? Well, it's this way. You see, I was just Mike... about to suggest that Simon forget about me and keep his date with your charming daughter. But, Uncle, Mr. Riley won't let me take Babs out. Simon, darling, where do you hear these rumors? <laughs> I insist you take my daughter, and you can leave your doctor here with me. But, Daddy, you said You've that... got to stop listening to what I say, honey. <laughs> now, listen to what I say. Get your coach. You mustn't keep our sweet Simon waiting. Uh, come right in, Doctor. Oh, no, no. I wouldn't think of imposing. The youngsters can drop me at my hotel. As a matter of fact, I've got a talk to prepare for the convention tomorrow. Oh, you talk too, Doctor. <laughs> yes. Uncle's one of the most famous specialists. Oh, no, 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 a nephew. A specialist? I insist you come in. Uh, I'm ready, Simon. Good night, Dr. Vanderhopper. Good, good night. night, Daddy. Good night. Good night. So long, kids. Have a good time. And don't worry about coming home early, Babs. When you're with Simon, you're perfectly safe. <laughs> now, come on in, Doc. Here, here, let me have your bag. Well, uh, I don't know, Mr. Riley. Of course, Riley. if you think it'll be too boring for you. Oh, no, not at all. I'm sure we can find something in common to talk about. Oh, you bet. When it comes to talking about something common, I'm your man. <laughs> Babs, your father sure took a liking to Uncle Lucius. I guess he was impressed when he found out he's a doctor. <laughs> if I know Daddy, he's going to tell your uncle all about that pain in his leg. If he did, he'd be wasting his time. Oh, doesn't your uncle like to give people free advice? Oh, it isn't that. Uncle Lucius can't give advice to people. He's a horse doctor. <laughs> little place you have here, Mr. Riley. Well, thanks, Doctor. Yeah, it was chilly outside. Oh, well, maybe you'd care for a little drink, huh? Uh, just a nip? Huh? I don't mind if I do. Yeah. Cocoa or milk? <laughs> oh, I won't trouble you. Uh, well, well, make yourself at home. Here, let me have your coat. I'll hang it in the closet. Thank you. Your hat? Oh, yes. Uh, and your bag. I might as well put that in the closet, too. Oh, here you are. Oh, watch you don't drop it. I've got all my medicine and instruments in there. Oh, you have? Well, in that case, we better take it into the living room. After you, doctor. <laughs> well, Riley. 
Valley is entertaining an interesting guest this evening, Dr. Lucius Vanderhopper, the uncle of his daughter's boyfriend, Simon Vanderhopper. And K.G. Riley hopes before the evening is over to get some free medical advice for a pain in his leg. Unfortunately, our clever hero is unaware of one important fact. Dr. Vanderhopper happens to be a horse doctor. Yes, sir, doctor. I got a pretty important job, and I plan to even if I do say so myself. My boss, Mr. Stevenson, says they can't build those planes without me. That's very interesting. Well, it's getting late. Yeah, right through the war, I turned out them planes practically single-handed. Why, if it hadn't have been for me, you know what would have happened? American pilots would have been flying over Berlin without any planes. <laughs> you, I, uh... Hope I ain't boring you. Uh, no, no, no. Well, I'll be running along. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't go yet. I, I've been talking about my profession. Now I ought to give you a chance to talk about your racket. Well, I... Speaking about medicine, I know of an interesting case that you might find interesting. This case, I, uh, I heard about it through, through a friend of mine, see? And, well, it, it began with a terrific pain in the right leg, right here b below the knee. You see, it's a swollen toe here. Hmm. Sounds like rheumatism. Rheumatism? Uh, unless there's a history of a blow. Uh, yeah, well, well, that's it. The, the leg got hurt jumping over a high fence. Oh, frisky creature, huh? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 kind of frisky, I guess. Well, you never can tell what that type will do. If you get too close to them, they're liable to kick you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well... This, this creature ain't that frisky. <laughs> uh, interesting case, huh? But I, I, I guess there's a cure for it, huh? Uh, what did you say, Doc? Hmm? Nothing. Oh. Well, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to get free advice. <laughs> oh, no, no. Don't worry about that. People try it every day. But I can smell a chiseler a mile off. <laughs> I guess I'll open a window. It's getting a little stuffy in here. Mr. Riley, uh, about that case you mentioned... Uh, yes, 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 yes. It's obviously a muscular strain. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, that's my specialty. I'd like to have a look at that leg. Oh, I don't think that's possible. You, you see, my friend, uh, he uh, can't afford it. He, he's already spent a fortune on doctors. Oh, in that case, I wouldn't think of charging a fee. No fee? Well, gee, that's swell of you. No fee. Well, no wonder you're such a successful doctor. Hand me my bag, please. Yeah, here it is. Lucky for me you had it with you. <laughs> now, first, here's a bottle of my specially prepared liniment. Have your friend apply that to the leg three times daily. Oh, thanks. This ought to do the trick, huh? Uh, yes, but external treatment isn't enough. Long years of experiment have shown me that a special diet and internal medication go a long way in speeding up muscular therapy. So, uh, here's what I advise. Yes, 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 yes. Here's a box of pills, mm -hmm. one to be given after each feeding. I got you. <laughs> but the most important thing is diet. Uh, I'll just jot it down here. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. It's a very simple diet, but mm. it must be followed scrupulously. There you are. Oh, thanks, Doctor, thanks. I, I appreciate this, especially the part about no fee. <laughs> Believe me, I'm going to recommend you to all my friends. Oh, forget it. I'm sure this will fix the leg up. Yes, as a matter of fact, I had a similar case last week in Chicago. Well, as I... you were saying, Doc, uh, it's getting late. Here's your bag. Good night. <laughs> Sure, put one over on that, Doctor. <laughs> kind of feel sorry for the old boy. Well, it's like the old saying the doctor's the last one to get paid. Correction. 
The doctor's not always the last. Uh, who, who's that? It is I, Digby O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. <laughs> Greetings, Riley. You're looking fine. Very natural. <laughs> oh, thanks, Digger. I feel great. Glad to see you anyway. Uh, well, what are you doing around here, Digger? Oh, I'm on my way to see a movie. I hear it's superb. Uh, what movie is that? Nobody Lives Forever. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. It's about gangsters. Oh, it is? Goody. I'm very fond of gangster pictures. Bogart tangling with Alan Ladd. Bogart mangling Sidney Greenstreet. Bogart strangling Peter Lorre. I adore Humphrey. He's so gay. <laughs> Would you care to join me, Riley? Uh, no, no, I, I gotta get home. I just came out to get some stuff for a diet a doctor gave me. You see, I got a sprain in my leg. A diet for a sprain? Yeah, I got it all written down here. Here, here it is, right here. Let me see. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. A doctor recommended this? He must be a quack. Quack? Honest? You think he's giving me the business? Judging by this, he's giving me the business. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but, but this guy's a great doctor, a specialist. You're like a lot of people, prejudiced against doctors. Oh, not I. Some of my best friends are doctors, believe me. <laughs> but take my advice. Look into this diet very carefully before you go farther. No, no, I know what I'm doing. But, Riley... Oh, I'm going to try it. Very well. Have it your way. But if you do, someday your epitaph may read something like this. Here lies Riley, who went on a diet. He kept shouting, I'll try it. Now he's lying here, quiet. <laughs> well, cheerio. I'd better be shoveling off. Dumpling in the kitchen. Oh, hello, dear. How's you? Riley, what are you eating? Oats. <laughs> They're delicious. Have some. You're eating oats? Yeah, yeah, and apples. You better get some more, though. I can only find a dozen in the icebox. You, you ate up the whole... Riley, what are oh, you... Oh, excuse me, Dumplin'. I gotta have my dessert. Mmm, delicious. What are you eating now? Lump of sugar. <laughs> I gotta eat one lump an hour. You're out of your mind. Oh, don't get excited, Dumplin'. This is my new diet. I found a great doctor. What doctor? Simon's uncle. He was here tonight and he gave me advice for my leg, and I didn't have to pay him a cent. But I never heard of a diet for a sore leg. Oh, it's great. I guarantee you in three weeks I'll be as strong as a horse. <laughs> Oh, he gave me some pills, too, in, in this box here. Look, see? Let me see those. Watch out, they're falling out. Mercy. What are those? Well, they're pills. What do they look like? Golf balls. <laughs> now, Peg, be sensible. You ask me to be sensible. Look at you. Oats, a sink full of apple cores, lump sugar, and what you've done to the house. It smells like a stable. Oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, uh, my liniment. Oh, Riley, are you sure this Uncle Simon knows what he's doing? Well, he's a great specialist, famous, only, only he ain't too smart. <laughs> Boy, I sure put one over on him. <laughs> well, good night, Simon. Oh, there's the kids. Can I come in for a while back? Oh, I don't think Daddy will... Well, of course he can come in. Come in, come in, Simon, darling. Oh, hello, Mother. Hello, dear. Hi, Daddy. Good evening, Mr. Riley. Hello, Mrs. Riley. Hello, hey, that uncle of yours is a great doctor. He's the best in his line. Yeah, he's been telling me all about his work. Oh, he's had some very interesting cases. Did he tell you about the one in Chicago last week that got hurt jumping a fence? Well, no, no, he started to, but, uh, well, what happened? Well, my uncle worked on him for days, but finally he had to put him out of his misery. Ah, oh, that's the kind of a doctor I like. I got... <laughs> put him out of his misery? <laughs> With a pill. One, two, three, it's all over. Oh, Simon, I never heard of such a thing. Why, sure, every horse doctor does that. <laughs> horse doctor? Your uncle's a horse doctor? Why, sure. <laughs> what a revolting development this is. <laughs> Daddy, didn't you know? A horse doctor? Oh, Riley, and you thought you were smart. Eating oats. Oh. Well, I thought it wasn't my... I, how could I... Simon, get out of this stable! Gee, what did I do? Get out before I... Holy smoke, I almost forgot I got a phone. Lucky I found out in time. Well, Daddy, who are you phoning? Mr. Stevenson, my boss. Mr. Stevenson? Hello, boss. This is Riley. Listen, you know that doctor I recommended to you for your wife? Well, don't use him. Never mind why not. Don't let him treat your wife unless you want to enter her in the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Yeah, Peg, I learned my lesson. Next time I want medical advice, I'm going to pay for it. After all, doctors got to live. Well, now you're showing some sense for a change. Yeah, what's more, I'm going to pay up all our doctor bills that are outstanding, too. Hmm. About time, too. Oh, don't do no harm. Let them wait a while. I got all the bills here. Let's see. Dr. Jubilee, December 1945, $28. Huh? Oh, that was for Junior's tonsils. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Here's another. August 1943, $6. Oh, that was when you swallowed that fishbowl. Oh, yeah. Here's one. June 1930, Dr. Bernstein, balance $12. What's that for? Oh, that was when Babs was born. What? <laughs> Peg, you realize what this means? We still don't own Babs outright. Procter & Gamble, makers of Teal, the amazing liquid dentifrice, invite you to be their guests next week to hear The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. The Life of Riley is produced for Teal by Irving Brecker and is directed by Don Bernard. The script is by Reuben Shipp and Alan Lipscott. Music by Lou Kozlov. Mrs. Riley is Paula Winslow, Digger O'Dell is John Brown, Babs is Barbara Eiler, Simon is Warren Mills, and Dr. Vanderhopper is Fred Shields. This is Ken Carpenter on behalf of Teal, inviting you to listen again next week to The Life of Riley. And remember, for lovely smiles, it's T-E-E-L, Teal. Teal, the amazing liquid dentifrice, protects teeth beautifully. D-R-E-F-T, that's drept. 
the suds for me. Try Drift and you'll agree. D-R-E-F-T. It's Drift for me. Yes, ladies, and it's Drift for you. Let's look at next week when Teal for a Beautiful Smile brings you the life of Riley. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. That was The Life of Riley. The name of that episode was Free Medical Advice. It originally was broadcast on NBC on 11-30, November the 30th of 1946. They said Riley was uh, 40 years old. That would mean he would have been born in 1906. And they said Babs, I believe. Did they say somewhere in there that she was born in 1930? Isn't that what it said, uh, what they said, Chester? You didn't notice. I think it was 1930. So that means Riley was about 24, right, when, when Babs was born. People had kids a lot younger back then. People got married younger. I think it was pretty typical to get married when you're just in your early 20s. And now a lot of people wait until even their 30s before they get married. Interesting. Just, uh, just a thought. What else did I notice on that one? Oh, teal. I do not remember that product at all. Teal Liquid Dentifrice. And we've talked about this before. That When did they start calling uh, dentifrice toothpaste? Or in this case, liquid. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I've had uh, powder, uh, tooth powder. I don't ever remember a liquid tooth cleaner or toothpaste. Does anyone remember that? I'll have to look up some information on teal. I do not remember them. Draft, I remember. Draft, I used to always have pictures of uh, babies. Really soft. The whole idea was soft. Well, that was The Life of Riley. If you enjoy The Life of Riley, send me a note and let me know that you'd like to hear some more. I don't think that those shows were ever quite as funny as some of the other shows we normally play, but I know everybody, for nostalgia reasons, likes to mix things up a little bit. And uh, I d always did enjoy William Bendix. So if you want more Life of Riley, we'll play it for you. I've got uh, many, many episodes in my file. Cottonwoods whispering above Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love The old hootie owl, hootie who's to the dove Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in does my lover feel what I feel when he comes near? My heart beats so joyfully. You'd think that he could hear. Wish I knew if he knew what I'm dreaming of. me, Jenny, Jenny.
That's a beautiful tune. That's from Tammy and the Bachelor, which was the original Tammy movie. And that, of course, was Debbie Reynolds who played Tammy. And I just have to play that song every now and then because I just love it so much. That was from like 1958 or 59. Tammy and the Bachelor. I know a lot of you sit around and just wait for Gunsmoke to play. Well, here you got it. This is your weekly Gunsmoke fix right here on Boomer Boulevard. It's time for us to travel back in time, back to the 1870s. We're going to Dodge City, Kansas. We are walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to 
meet up with Doc and Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on another episode of Gunsmoke. And we've got a good one tonight. It goes way back to the beginning, 1952. And this is an episode I've never played before. I didn't have a a good sound quality copy of it. And I'm trying to update some of my earlier episodes of Gunsmoke so that we can uh, get better sound quality on these. But this is an excellent episode. It's uh, very dramatic and uh, a few twists along the way. Maybe one you won't see coming. But this one is entitled The Kentucky Tollmans. And it was originally broadcast on CBS back on August the 9th of that year, 1952. So hold on, folks, because here it comes. Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Report's finished, Mr. Dillon. Good. You better go on home now, Chester. It's getting late. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, what about these new Dodgers? I'll just leave them there. I'll look them over. What's the matter, Mr. Dillon? They got company at the back door. All right, come in, mister. Get in, I said. Get your paws off of me. What? A girl? Sure, I'm a girl. What do you think I am? Put that long rifle away and I'll tell you. Where'd you get that thing, anyway? Pappy brought it with him from Kentucky, if it's any of your business, which it ain't by a darn sight. Uh-huh. What you doing hanging around in the alley? Get rid of him there and... we'll jaw about it. Huh? I see. Uh, Chester. <laughs> Good night. Hmm? Well, but I'm not going to... Yes, sir. Good night, Mr. Dillon. My gracious. You the marshal here? That's right, miss. My name's Hannah. Hannah Tolman. You arrest folks, don't you? Well, if they've committed a crime, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, then I got somebody for you to arrest. Oh, uh, who? Pappy. Why? Because I said to, that's why. Somebody's been trying to kill him. I figure about the safest place for him is in jail. Now, wait a minute. Slow down. Let's start at the beginning, huh? A few days ago, Pappy was bushwhacked up in the hills near our place. Oh? Was he hurt? No. Slug just bounced off in his head a little. 
Yesterday, the bushwhacker tried again. He missed. Sounds like a bad shot. Sure. But if he keeps trying, he may get lucky. So you put Pappy in jail until I can run down this ambushing gent, okay? <laughs> you plan to cross guns with him yourself? I may be a girl, but I was barking squirrels while you were still trying to dent a tin can. <laughs> well, you better let me take care of it, miss. And as uh, for your father, I can't jail him without a charge. Sure, I know that. What kind of a charge do you want? Well, what kind do you have? Well, most any, I reckon. Ain't it enough that he's drunk all the time? Well, I can hold him overnight on that. What if he shoots up the town? That's five days for disturbing the peace. That'll do. Where did he do this shooting? We ain't. Yet. He's down at the Alphaganza slopping up booze at that other old buzzard, Jingle Bob. Oh, the swamper? Yeah, that's the one. You'd best be somewheres around the saloon in a few minutes. I got a feeling Pappy's about due to bust the law again. Her story didn't make much sense, but there was something about the mountain girl's gleaming black eyes and the set of her pretty but stubborn face that made me go to the Alifraganza. At the bar, I ordered a glass of rye and watched two bewhiskered old-timers trying to outlie each other over a rapidly emptying bottle. Yes, uh, Jingle Bob. You just wait and see. Jed Tolman's gonna have the biggest damn horse ranch in Kansas come spring. Uh, sure you are, absolutely. <laughs> and me, why, I I reckon I'll just buy up this here saloon. Oh, you're lying. Well, sure I am. Ain't you? What's my money was spending, ain't it? How many times I got to tell you I'm getting rich? Happy, are you drunk? <laughs> if I ain't, I've been wasting a side of time. Now leave me alone, daughter. Go home where you belong. I'm going. Only come over to tell you, man, bet me $10. You couldn't shoot out that lamp on the first shot. What's that? Oh, give me that rifle. All right, hold on. That's enough of that. Stay back, son. What? Now, go collect your $10, daughter. Yeah, Pappy. But I think the marshal here's a fixin' to arrest you. Huh? Ain't you, marshal? <laughs> yeah, I guess I am. All right, come along, Jed. Come on. Get your hands off me. Well, I never... You jailing a man for, for having a little fun. Why, you'd never get away with this back in Kentucky. Jed, you're in trouble, aren't you? Who's trying to kill you? No, I reckon that's my business. Now, that's the law's business. I'll take care of myself, Marshal. Uh-huh. Back in the saloon there, you mentioned having money and getting more. So... From what I've heard, you and your daughter run a two-bed horse ranch up in the hills. That hardly figures to make you rich. So? Ah, you thick-headed old... Look, all I'm doing is trying to save your skin if it's in danger. Now, why don't you help me instead of being... Reckon I don't want to. Well, that's plain enough. Morning, Chester. Oh, morning, Mr. Dillon. You better take a look at this new Dodger. Huh? Wanted for robbery and murder, 
Vic Tolman. So that murderous gun hawk is loose again, huh? Broke out of prison last week. Yeah. If he's kin to Jed Tolman, he'll like to be heading this way. Yeah, likely. I'll give you a hunch, Chester. I think he's here already. You do? You know where he is? No, not exactly. But I expect Hannah Tolman may have an idea. And that's where I'm heading. what I like to see. Uh, a man-sized appetite. <laughs> this wonderful corn pone. I'm a good cook. Been cooking for Pappy ever since Ma died ten years ago. Huh? You take pretty good care of him. Somebody has to. Pappy's kind of shiftless. I reckon he'd starve if I didn't feed him. Only things he cares about are wild horses and booze. And in a pinch, he'd give up horses. <laughs> you know, you're quite a woman, Hannah. You're pretty, brave, and with more courage than most men I know. Too quick, Marshal. What? You're sweetening me up for some reason. Not that I mind, you understand. I'm partial to a strapping fella like you. And Pappy's always after me to get hitched up. Says it ain't fitting for me to be 22 without a man. Oh, you're still young. Not the mountain folk. I'm an old maid. And I'm agreeable for some sweet talk. Only I don't trust yours. What are you after, Marshal? All right, Hannah. I only want the truth. About what? Where's your father getting this money he's spending? I wish I knew. Who shot at him? I don't know, but I'm aiming to find out. Where's Vic? Where's he hiding, Hannah? Who? Vic Tolman, your brother. Or maybe he's your cousin. Brother. Where? I don't know. Hannah, be sensible. Vic's a murderer. Vic's my kin. We Tolmans don't turn on each other. If you shelter him, you're guilty of... Marshal, I reckon you just wore out your welcome. prisoner will stand up and face me. <clears throat> Jed Tolman, you've been found guilty of disturbing the peace. Sentence of this court is five days in jail or a hundred dollars. A hundred? Well, Judge, ain't that a much steep just for... A hundred dollars or five days. Uh, I ain't got that much on me. Uh, but I can get it if you let me go. Just a minute. Hold her in the court. Now, what's the meaning of, uh, of this interruption? I want to pay this man's fine, Your Honor. That's your privilege, sir. Hundred dollars. Pay the clerk. Yes, sir. Ah, Dick Curry. Somebody's been turning over rocks. <laughs> well, I don't know him, but he's sure a friend. Looks like I ain't going with you, Marshal. Yeah, looks like. But in your boots, I wouldn't be happy. Curry's one of the worst killers yet unhung. Oh, Matt, is that a way to talk about me? I'm clear with the law. Come on, Mr. Tolman. Go ahead, Jed. And uh, say hello to Vic for me. Vic? No. 
Mr. Curry, is that true? What's the difference who put out the hundred? Come on. No. No, not even it's Vic. No, you can't make me. I said come on. Marshal, don't let him take me. Oh, shut up and come on before Curry. I... Curry. Hmm? Stay out of this, Marshal. I don't think so. You paid his fine. You didn't buy him. He's going with me, Matt. Don't try to stop me. I can't imagine anything that'll give me more pleasure. You don't like living, do you? Very much. Now, just any time you feel like it. No. Not here, Matt. I'll pick my spot. Yeah. I'll try not to turn my back on any dark alleys. Do that. And, Tillman, I'll be seeing you again. Some uh, stud, Marshal? Why don't we play while we wait? No, thanks, Jingle Bob. You needn't wait with us. Well, uh, Jed's my friend, Mr. Dillon. Sure. Maybe I can't help him none, but at least I can share whatever the trouble is. Understand? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Jed here's a lying old ringtail drunk, but me, well, when a man is down to scrubbing saloon floors just to get the liquor that'll keep his nerves from shaking apart. He, he's grateful for any friendship that's offered. Don't move. Curry, get his gun. Sure thing. <laughs> you recognize me, Mark? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Vic Tolman. There are Dodgers out on you. You're a cool one, Dillon. Too bad we're on opposite sides of the fence. Yeah, it's too bad. Real pity. <laughs> you know, I'm going to enjoy this job. What job? Well, don't you know? Vic's taking his paw away from you. But you won't mind. You'll be dead. Curry, you stick here and take care of these two. Jed and I'll go on ahead. Oh, son. Son, I, I don't want to go nowhere. Now, Paul, don't rile me. You're going with me. None of you are going anyplace, Vic. Check. What the window? Reach high, both of you. And let go of that hardware. Now, you better do as he says. Because Chester's a little nervous with that shotgun. There's mine. Looks like the odds are with you, so... You might as well get rid of that spare in your boot, Vic, before you run into any temptations. <laughs> you got sharp eyes, Marshal. Law gets a lot of backing up tonight. Your mistake, Vic. Sometimes people just don't give Chester enough credit. Ah, chow time. Hmm. Beef steak, fried potatoes, stewed corn. Marshal, I must say, you run a nice jail, don't he, Curry? No. <laughs> don't mind Curry. He's a little depressed about last night. You still run a nice jail. Something on your mind, Marshal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of things. Such as? Oh, such as your father spending money he hasn't earned. Claiming to know where he can get more. Mm-hmm. 
Paul sure a terrible liar. Mm-hmm. Such as him getting shot at twice and refusing to talk about it? Or help me investigate? Paul's a little bashful, too. Yeah. Such as his being afraid of you? Mm, I guess Paul's getting old, little doddery. Yeah. Then, of course, there's you. Well, now you're on my favorite subject. Go on. Well, you're a killer and a thief. <clears throat> But you're cool and smart. Smart enough to educate yourself. I had lots of time to read in the pen. Lots of time. You're going to have more. But not much more. Because you're going to hang for those guards that you killed. Maybe. Curry, ain't you going to eat that? Mm-mm. Now, go on about me being smart. You're smart enough to know the most dangerous place for you to go after you escaped was here. Well, it looks like I ain't as smart as you think. It depends on what reason you had for risking coming here. Boy, that's your good coffee. First jail I was ever in where the coffee was fit to drink. Oh, thank you. Okay, Marshal. Now, just what was my reason? reason was money. Money? Cash. It's the only thing that would give you a chance to get out of the country. You're in for robbery as well as murder. How much of the loot was recovered? You know how it is, Marshal. Easy come, easy go. I spent it as fast, well, nearly as fast as I got it. So nothing was recovered, huh? No, it was all gone. It was all hidden, you mean? Hidden until Jed found it. Paul? Sure. That's his source of money. It's also why he was afraid to go with you. <laughs> like I said, too bad we're on opposite sides. You got brains and you use them. You want to fill in the details for me? I'll tell you this. You're right about my cash of money. I'd had it and be on my way to Mexico by now if Paul hadn't switched hiding places on me. You know, it hurts. Paul's turning against me. Yeah, yeah. The Tolmans always stick together. Except when money's involved. How about you, Markham? Money by you? Sky's the limit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, I figure not. Well, <clears throat> been a nice chat. Won't take you straight. Hurry, give me a hand. All right, back up, Curry. That's it. And tell Vic when he wakes up to take it easy. Or he won't live to be hung. Hey, Jingle Bob, you seen Jed? Sorry, Marshal, I don't know where Jed is. Been looking for him myself. Golly, I'm cold. He must have left town last night. Yeah. Ain't you cold? I got an old jacket you can have. I'd rather have a shot. Better steal two shots. You got the jumps? Always got them, except when I'm full of booze. Funny, you won't believe it, but there was a time when I couldn't stand the taste of hard liquor. Made me sick. No, can't live without it. Yes, you can. Maybe. Let's say I don't want to. Let's say that... Here. Go buy yourself a drink. Quick. 
Hey, that's enough for a whole bottle. Well, well thanks. See you later, Marshal. Supper time, Chester. Chester. Chester, you all right? The prisoners? Gone. Hannah Tolman slipped them a gun. They made me open up the cell, and Vic slugged me. Well, I know where they'll go. Please, Mr. Dillon, take me along. It was my fault they escaped. All right, Chester. Ask Doctor put a quick patch on that head, and we'll go after them together. Starting to get dark. Yeah. Why'd we leave the road back there? I wanted to reach that rise, Chester. But we circled around to come up the backside. Does that have something to do with you bringing binoculars? Yeah, it does. Vic Tolman will know he'll be followed. I want to see what kind of a surprise he has for us. All right, pull up. You wait here. anything? No. Not yet. Now, wait. I knew now. Yeah, it's Curry, all right. He's holed up in some brush just beyond the turn in the road down there. Well, what do we do, Mr. Dillon? Uh, take the horses and circle back the way we came. Start up the road, but don't make the turn. I understand. Now, be sure. As long as you don't make the turn, you'll be safe. But, uh, I do want you to make some noise. Noise? Yeah, I want you to sing, whistle, throw rocks, anything. Just so long as it holds Curry's attention. It was slow work, crawling down through the brush, but finally I was only ten feet behind Curry's position. The gunman was holding a rifle trained on the turn. And out of sight, coming up the road, I could hear Chester. Well, he wasn't good, but he was loud. Come on around the turn, blast you. All right, don't turn around, Curry. You may have a point, but I like Chester, bad singing and all. Now lay the rifle aside and unbuckle your gun belt. Now, careful. Yeah, sure, sure. Only don't shoot. Okay. Chester! Chester! I didn't mean no harm. I, I was only going to scare him. Yeah. Now, where's Vic? At the Tolman house. Waiting for Jed to show up. Uh-huh. All right, put your hands behind your back. I'm going to tie you up and leave you here. Let, leave me here? Yeah, we'll pick you up on the way back to town. It was dark when Chester and I were moving through the trees up to the Tolman shack. There was a light in the front, and through a window we could see the figure of Hannah Tolman moving around. Just a girl. Yeah, Vic's there. He just stand out of sight so Jed won't be scared off. Uh-oh. She's coming out. 
heading this way. Yeah, there must be a well out here. She's carrying a bucket. Yeah, behind that tree quick, and I'll take this one. Down. We're not going to hurt you. Stop fighting. Chester, grab her legs quick. Yes, sir. I was saving these handcuffs for Vic, but I guess they'll do for you. There. Now, do you promise to be quiet or do we gag you? All right, have it your way. Chester, give me your bandana. Yes, sir. Here. That should do it. All right, stay with her, Chester. I'm going for Vic. I was halfway to the shack when inside Vic Tolman became suspicious. Suddenly the lights went out, and the door opened, and a shadowy figure swept out to stand, listening. Anna? Anna, answer me. Drop him, Vic. Who is that? I can't see. Matt Dillon. Throw down those guns. You're under arrest. Not this time. Vic. You were right, Marshal. I ain't gonna live to... I Vic. Mr. Dillon, over here. Hey, uh, what is it, Chester? Who's that, Jed? Yes, yeah, sir. I caught him sneaking towards the house. He was carrying this bag. Here, let me see. That's the money. I, I was taking it to Vic. Is he? Yeah. You're too late, Jed. Oh, no. I ought to give him his money. If only he hadn't taken them shots at me. He didn't. Until he found out where the money was hidden, he was the last person in the world to want you dead. But, uh, I don't understand. He, he must No. Be, uh... Only the person who knew where you had the money would have shot at you. Nobody knew that. How could they? Who, who you could... talk a lot when you get drunk, Chad. And you only get drunk with one person. Huh? You mean... You mean Jingle Bob? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I was bragging. Told him all about finding it and switching hiding places. Why, that low-down snake. And him pretending to be my friend. Come on, Chet. I'll help you bury Vic. Then we'll get back to Dodge. We Tolman sure have had a bad week. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Herb Purdom, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in tonight's cast were Virginia Gregg, Joseph Kearns, and Junius Matthews, with Harry Bartell, Lou Krugman, and Peter Leeds. Parley Bear is Chester. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. <laughs>
remember, America must produce as she never has before. She must produce war materials, civilian goods, and above all, democracy. Only an all-out effort in all three directions will give us security against aggression. George Walsh speaking, and remember, Gangbusters goes into action Saturday nights on the CBS Radio Network. Did you see that twist coming early in the show? This guy was going to kill his own father because his father stole his money. Oh, that's like Shakespeare, isn't it? That was not written by John Meston. Meston, I don't know how involved he was that early in the Gunsmoke uh, shows, but uh, this was a very early episode. This was like episode eight or nine or something like that. I could look it up, but who really cares? It was very early, but it was written by Herb Purdom. And I don't think he wrote too many Gunsmoke scripts, but he was a pretty prolific writer in Hollywood. I don't have a list of a lot of the uh, radio credits that he did. I'm sure they are many. He uh, did write, though, for a number of TV shows uh, as late as 1980. He wrote for uh, Huckleberry Finn and His Friends, which was a TV series. I don't remember that. That was in 1980. He wrote for Emergency, O'Hara U.S. Treasury. Remember that with uh, David Jansen? He wrote for Adam 12, Death Valley Days. He did a number of episodes. Lancer, uh, Surfside 6. Boy, now we're going back into the uh, very early 60s, late 50s. The Deputy, that was the one with Henry Fonda. He wrote for that. Route 66, of course, that was sort of a uh, iconic show for that era. Who, who was it in that? It was the guy that was on Adam 12. And George Maharis, was it? I guess it doesn't matter. Rawhide, Broken Arrow, Man Without a Gun, White Hunter in 1957. Don't remember that one. Uh, New Adventures of Charlie Chan as a TV series. I don't remember that. Sheriff of Cochise, I remember that. The Lone Ranger, here we go. Jungle Jim, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, The Lone Wolf. Uh, Adventures of the Falcon, a TV series. Uh, the Adventures of China Smith, that was with Dan Daly. That was a TV show. What was that, Chester? What did I say? Oh, Dan Durier. That's right, it was Dan Durier. Uh, thank you for catching that. Dan Daly was not in China Smith, it was Dan Durier. Mr. and Mrs. North, who at the uh, the TV series had the same folks that played... Uh, Played them at the end on radio, uh, Richard Denning and Barbara Britton. GE Theater, Boston Blackie, the TV series. Remember that? Uh, Gangbusters, the TV series, The Cisco Kid. So you can see that radio really did feed into television, and that's where the uh, earliest TV shows came from. And a lot of times they used the same scripts.
folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. I'm just so glad we have so many listeners. I can't tell you how appreciative I am. And it keeps going up each week. It keeps keeps going up each week. And that is just very, very gratifying. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, this is Bob Bro. Until we get together again, I am so glad you stopped by. And I am so glad you met me. And bought myself a ticket and I sat down in the very first row. They pulled the curtain, but then when they turned the spotlight way down low, little Egypt came out strutting, wearing nothing but a button and a bow. Texas on a toe. She let her hair down and she did the hoochie coochie real slow. When she did a special number on a zebra skin, I thought she'd stop the show. Tattooed on her spine saying Phoenix, Arizona, now.